0: Joanna was on a romantic getaway in Puerto Rico in 2014 with her then boyfriend, Dr. Gregory Conrath, a prominent Indiana orthopedic surgeon. They enjoyed a few cocktails at the bar when the conversation turned to murder. Joanna would say, this is the most beautiful place in the world to hear the most terrifying thing you've ever heard. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Like many of us nowadays, Joanna Beersachudek and Dr. Gregory Conrath met online. They both used a dating website, which paired them up. Gregory had a lot of things going for him in Joanna's eyes. He was stable, a prosperous doctor. In fact, he was an orthopedic surgeon who made over $1.7 million a year working in Peru, Indiana. He was at the top of his career and owned as many as five homes. He seemed to have work and life balanced well. He was in great physical shape, enjoyed mountain climbing, and traveled the world in order to climb the Seven Summits. he climbed all seven of the world's tallest mountains, and at the time he was only one of 229 people to have actually completed this task. He wanted to share his love of climbing with his children, and climbed the easiest of the Seven Summits with his ten-year-old son. It was a day that neither man nor boy would ever forget. If that wasn't enough, Gregory was also creative. He was a self-published writer, an author of a political thriller. In the ocean of 40-something online singles, and sometimes not-so-singles, he seemed like a good choice. Let's say he was swipe-right worthy. It seemed to Joanna that Gregory was looking for the same things as she was, number one being a serious relationship. They seemed to have other things in common, too. They both truly enjoyed caring for people. Gregory had volunteered his medical services overseas in Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. Joanna, a dark-haired nurse, a mother, and divorcee, was impressed with Gregory from the start. He was the consummate gentleman. Joanna would tell the TV show 2020 that Gregory always came to pick her up. Lots of times he brought flowers— He was a romantic gentleman who opened the door and things like that. Of course, he wasn't perfect. He liked to drink. He had been known to buy shots for the entire bar of people back in his hometown of Peru, Indiana. And not just one shot, either. Sometimes his tab at his favorite drinking place would reach as high as $3,000. The couple began dating, and after only four months, Joanna would be invited to move into his home in Peru. There, Gregory would continue to spoil her, spending money on dates and buying her expensive things. She eventually met his mother and his three children. Sometimes they'd go to his children's games and sit next to his ex-wife, Anna. Anna was nice. She and Greg got along fine, and attendance at his children's games was a regular occurrence. As time went on, Joanna hoped that she and Gregory would get married. They'd even looked at rings, and she'd purchased a wedding dress. After 10 months of dating, Gregory thought it would be nice for him and Joanna to take a vacation together to beautiful Puerto Rico. They rented a hotel room right on the beach. Joanna was expecting rest, relaxation, and romance, and maybe, just maybe, a proposal. One evening, they headed to the rooftop bar of the resort hotel. The view overlooked the ocean, and they could watch the sunset in the distance. It was certainly romantic sitting there on a large white outdoor sectional covered with pillows that matched the tropical colors of the Caribbean Sea in the background. They ordered drinks, and one led to two, which led to more. Joanna chose tropical, fruity concoctions, and Gregory stuck with rum and Diet Coke. You longtime listeners know how much I enjoy a good rum drink, and at this point in the story, I'm envious of the couple, but that is about to change. As the drinks keep coming, the conversation meanders and branches away from their plans for their week-long vacation, the gorgeous weather and how nice it was to relax in the warm ocean breeze, and it turned toward an evil plot, one in which Gregory had already set in motion. With his lips loosened by alcohol, he cold-heartedly began to explain how he was going to kill his ex-wife Anna. It wasn't the first time he brought up murdering his ex-wife— A couple days earlier, Joanna had heard bits of the plan, but chalked it up to an empty boast by a man who drank too much. Or maybe she rationalized he was joking. She'd heard other people joke about their exes before, and Gregory was building in his hatred of Anna. In December of 2008, six years earlier, Greg and Anna had jointly filed for divorce. According to court documents, he failed to appear at the divorce hearing, and the judge used his prior year's income of $1.7 million in setting child support and maintenance fees. Six years later, he was far behind on his support payments. In fact, he owed Anna more than a million dollars. He claimed he wasn't making that kind of money now, and he couldn't pay her. When Greg began rambling on for a second time about murdering his ex-wife, Joanna began to feel that maybe he really was serious. He seemed to lose himself in the plans. Meanwhile, Joanna was trying to figure out whether he was just angry, or worse, if he was truly going to hurt Anna. At some point, she reached into her pocket and surreptitiously found her voice memos app and pressed the red button to record. As Gregory's talking about Anna, he begins by saying that he's planned this for over a year, and for the next 23 minutes... Joanna records Gregory as he lays out the plan in great detail. He'd shoot her and make it look like a suicide. He'd done his homework. He'd studied the forensics and decided that the best outcome for him would be a quick death. He was confident that the hollow-point bullets he'd purchased would bounce around in her head. Those are his words, caught on tape. I'm going to read to you from some of the transcript from that tape. He says... One choice is to do it in the bedroom. If for some reason the kids woke up, there's lots of ways to get out. I'll take an unmarked gun that has no prints, with bullets already planted in her house, which they are, because she shoots herself in the head. She kills herself. Suspicion would fall immediately on me, the ex-husband. She has a million-dollar life insurance policy, and I'm the beneficiary. Then he talks about how he's been careful with the gun that he's already purchased. He says, I never touched it with my hands. Even when I took it to a shooting range, I wore latex gloves. I'll put six bullets in her and spit on her body. After killing her, he plans to put her prints on the bullet and on the handle of the gun. Then he talks about the challenges of killing his ex-wife. He says, one thing I don't know is, is she going to slump down and die right there? That would be ideal, but maybe she'll writhe around and start making noise. I've done a lot of research on that, and that's why I switched my phone, by the way. I used it for research, and you know, nothing is traceable. I drove over there twice, all ready to go, and both times something happened. He added that he already had prearranged messages to send to her family, informing them of Anna's suicide. He had planned to kill Anna on a night he wasn't on call, and could leave his cell phone at home, He would wear latex gloves and an extra layer of clothing and then ditch those in a dumpster. He'd stop at a gas station on his way home to clean up. It seemed as though he'd thought of nearly everything, and his reason for telling Joanna his plans were to have her as his alibi. She asked him, "'What do you think of it, morally?' And he responded, "'I think it's justice.' "'But two wrongs don't make a right,' she says. Gregory responds sarcastically, Is God going to strike her down and give her a disease and kill her? At some point in the discussion, Joanna brings up jail time, and Gregory says he has to do the killing in Indiana, because he can do 30 years in an Indiana prison, but he doesn't want to do jail time in Illinois. So he has to kill Anna before she moves to Chicago, and that window of time was closing. For the majority of the conversation, Joanna is keeping silent, almost as if she's in shock listening to what Gregory had to say but it's weird because when she does speak, it doesn't seem as though she's concerned about Anna or the children. Instead, she says, you're going to have to start thinking about money. This seems to knock Gregory back a bit. He asks why he needs to think about money, and she says, don't you care about me? You need to set everyone up. I think we can all safely assume this means financially. He tells her, no, he can't do that, and that she's selfish. The tension between them is obvious. Then she asks, can they get married first? Does anybody else think this is a strange question to ask after just hearing how your boyfriend plans to kill his ex-wife? It gets worse. Hang on to your cheeks. Joanna then brings up Gregory's current wife. Yes, my friends, he's married. He tells Joanna that his wife, who lives in Mexico, has $250,000 and that she'll be fine but he can't set Joanna up with any money. Joanna is seeing red. Or maybe vanishing dollar signs. Or maybe both. I'm not sure. Gregory's current wife, Cynthia Salazar, lives in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. When interviewed, Joanna claimed she didn't know about Cynthia until that trip in Puerto Rico. She told 2020 that she caught him sending texts to her and that he had been sending her money for quite some time. She suspected that after he killed Anna, he would make a run for the border, and I'm not talking about Taco Bell. Ironically, on the recording, church bells began to ring in the distance. Joanna claimed to be scared. I have to speculate that she was angry and feeling jilted, too. She got up, left Gregory at the table, and locked herself in the restaurant bathroom. Gregory began pounding on the door, and the recording was shut off. Greg, belligerent and drunk, had followed Joanna to the bathroom and pounded on the door, but it didn't take him long to give up. She would make her way back to their room, and he spent the remainder of that evening sipping on cocktails and making new friends. At some point, he stumbled back up to their shared room and passed out next to Joanna. She lay there next to him, wondering what her next move should be. Her plan would begin in the early hours of the next morning. She gets online and removes all the money from their shared account. The total was about $30,000. She then booked the earliest flight home that she could find. Before the plane even left the ground, she emailed copies of the recording to several law enforcement agencies back in Indiana. As soon as she hit the ground back at home, she felt like she was racing against the clock. She began packing all of her belongings from their shared home. She was scared that now he would try to kill her, too. She wondered if he thought people would believe that both his ex-wife and his girlfriend would both kill themselves. She was hastily throwing her things in boxes when the doorbell rang. She peeked outside, and she saw a police officer at the door. Being smart and a bit suspicious, she asked the officer to show her badge before allowing her inside. The officer then tells Joanna that Gregory had called the police to do a well check on Joanna. He was worried that she was suicidal. The hair stood up on the back of Joanna's neck. His games were beginning. Was he setting the stage for her murder, too? The officer can see that Joanna was alive, but she wasn't doing well. Not at all. Joanna was panicking. She quickly explained the situation to the officer and played the recording for her. She tells her about her year-long relationship, the planned vacation, the twisted conversation, the recording, and Joanna's early departure. Joanna asked the officer to search the house for evidence, and then was escorted to the station, where she provided a sworn statement and gave police a copy of the recording. The police used this information to obtain a warrant to search the house. At the house, they found a 38 caliber revolver, loaded with hollow-point bullets, It was found stored in a plastic bag, covered with latex gloves, and, in another bag, similar to the one the gun was in, scrubs, sweatpants, and some other gear. It pretty well fit the description Gregory had laid out in his murder plot. Returning to the station with the items from the house, police continued to question Joanna. At four o'clock in the morning, they took her to a safe house, where she fell asleep feeling exhausted and relieved because now the authorities knew the whole story. Surely they had enough evidence to lock Gregory up for a long time. Back in Puerto Rico, Gregory Conrath had woken up without his girlfriend next to him. He couldn't figure out what happened. They texted throughout the day, but she failed to return to the hotel that evening. Later on, he discovered that Joanna had cleaned out their bank account. He returned to Indiana the following day. Once he arrived home, he saw that most of Joanna's stuff was in boxes— Soon after, a police officer called him to ask him if he could come in for questioning about an alleged plan to kill his ex-wife. Gregory told the officers he knew he had said something that scared Joanna. He had shared a dark fantasy before with his buddies while drinking, just to blow off steam, but he couldn't remember much about that night in Puerto Rico or what he had said. He refused to answer questions without a lawyer present. The following Monday, he went to work as normal, heading to Duke Memorial Hospital in Peru. But after his shift on Tuesday, police would arrest him in a Kroger parking lot on the charges of attempted murder. These felony charges would carry a maximum of 40 years in prison. He'd be taken to the Miami County Jail, where his bond was set at $250,000. The small Indiana town would soon be facing a media circus surrounding this case. Circuses aren't new to Peru, however. Peru, Indiana is known for its amateur youth circus and the Circus City Festival. Peru welcomes youth of all ages to practice and perform in all varieties of circus acts, from tumbling to the flying trapeze. In mid-July, the entire town watches as the youth put on their very own show in the Big Top. Years ago, local prosecuting lawyer Bruce Embry walked into the circus with his seven-year-old daughter. She wanted to join the city's amateur circus. And Bruce Embry always liked volunteering in the things his kids were involved in. So it wasn't long before the circus organizers asked if he had any interest in working as the ringmaster on one of their road shows. He volunteered and became the ringmaster of the Peru Circus for nearly 40 years. He did everything from announcing new performers to riding on top of elephants. When Gregory's case arrived, on Prosecutor Bruce Emery's desk inside his law office, he was shocked. In nearly 40 years as a judge, and a prosecutor, and ringmaster, he had never seen a case like this. He listened to the recording and was shocked. Murder and attempted murder cases were not common in Miami County. The recording chilled him, and the next day he filed the attempted murder charges against Gregory for taking a substantial step toward the commission of murder. After nearly a month in jail, Gregory posted a $20,000 bond and was released. The authorities required him to surrender his passport and served him a no-contact order for both Anna and Joanna. Acting irrationally, clown-like, some would say, Gregory quickly broke both orders and went to great lengths to get in touch with each woman. He went back to the house he had shared with Joanna and sent her an email asking if she missed him and if she wanted to talk. She didn't respond. Not long after, she would receive three pieces of mail at her new P.O. box, even though she'd never given him the address. Gregory, not being as bright as he thought he was, had to call a private investigator named Dale Seward to try and find Joanna. He gave her what little information he had, her name, phone number, friends' phone numbers, and kids' phone numbers, but what he really wanted to know was where she lived now. Private Investigator Seward thought this was strange. If Gregory had all her contact information, why didn't he just call her and ask himself? When it came time for payment, the investigator would receive an envelope with a check inside. There would also be a note asking the investigator to hold off on cashing the payment for a few days. This rang alarm bells. He wondered why this man, who claimed to be a doctor, needed him to wait to cash a check. A couple days later, he'd put two and two together. He was scrolling through Facebook when he read a news story about a local surgeon charged with attempted murder. The name was familiar. The investigator immediately contacted the local media and the police. In the meantime, Greg hadn't given up on trying to reach Joanna. He texted a woman he knew who had worked with him in the past. He wanted her to call Joanna and pretend to be someone else. Someone who needed an address in order to send a refund for a loan overpayment. The woman knew better than to get involved, and she called the police. Not one to give up easily, Gregory had even called the pharmacy where Joanna had her prescriptions filled and used his status as a doctor to order her some phenteramine, a weight loss drug. Joanna would receive an automated call that her prescription had been filled, and it was a prescription she had never ordered. She was quick to call the police. Gregory had even tried to use his children to reach out to Joanna on his behalf. He asked his daughter to arrange a dinner date for the two of them. These actions, as harmless as he may have thought they were, along with messages he had passed on to his ex-wife Anna through his kids, led to his arrest for breaking the no-contact orders. Only eight days after he had been released, he was back in jail awaiting trial on three new charges. Stalking Anna, Stalking Joanna, and issuing an invalid prescription. Doctor, I think I'm above the law, wasn't done with his tricks quite yet. Police later heard from an employee at a Kokomo Walgreen, who passed on information that Gregory had probably been plotting to leave the country prior to his arrest. This employee said that earlier in the month, when out on bond, the doctor had come into the store to purchase passport photos, as well as some smaller pictures. Police looked at the store surveillance, which showed Gregory measuring something from his wallet. It appeared to be a driver's license. If you had a boyfriend or girlfriend in another country who you'd been sending money to, where do you think you would go if you were getting ready to run from the law? It seemed pretty obvious to police that Gregory would want to go to Mexico. Based on this lead, police were able to obtain another search warrant. They seized Gregory's iPhone and MacBook, Forensics performed on the phone showed that he had reset it on July 4th, the day that Joanna fled Puerto Rico. After that, he spent time online looking up how to find people on various websites and, as expected, flights to Mexico. When they dug a little deeper, they found data recovered from before July. There were searches for guns and handguns, and they even found a text message that Gregory received that said, did you ever end up getting yourself a handgun? An iPhone 4 message received a conversation from July 30th or July 1st, in which Gregory told someone he had talked to Joanna about the murder plan. Further examination of Gregory's laptop uncovered searches on topics like guns, gun brokers, and how to hide money in a divorce. There were queries for information on gun shows and interpreting gunshot wounds. He'd been thinking about murder for quite a while. Of course, Anna, the ex-wife, was told of Gregory's plan, and police would eventually get their hands on physical evidence, because in the process of moving to Chicago, Anna would stumble upon bullets in her nightstand. These were items she'd never seen before, and they matched the type found in Gregory's gun, just like he'd described in his drunken rant. Prosecutor and ringleader Embry believed this case would be open and shut. The evidence was mounting, and with the trial looming, he thought he'd search for a previous case to use as precedent. He found a recent case, but it was an unfortunate one Mark Collier versus the State of Indiana. The case summary is as follows Mark Collier married his wife Nancy in 1986, they separated in 2003. Nancy obtained an order of protection in which Mark was ordered to stay away from her place of employment. She filed for divorce in early April of 2003. Later that same month, Nancy worked a 2.30 to 10.30 p.m. shift at her hospital. That day, Mark went to the home of his neighbor, Charles Cameron, at approximately 3 p.m. According to Cameron, Mark was upset because he thought he was going to lose his home because he and his ex-wife were getting a divorce. Mark then told Cameron that he was going to kill his wife and himself, and he went home. Cameron thought Mark was just talking because he had said similar things before and had never actually done anything. A couple hours later, Mark returned to Cameron's home and said, tonight's the night. As the two walked back to Mark's house, Mark told Cameron that he was going to kill himself and his wife. Once again, back in the house, they each drank some beer and Mark eventually dozed off in his chair. Cameron thought it was over and went back home. But at some point during the day, Cameron had called a mental health center and Mark's ex-boss because he thought Mark needed psychiatric help. Mark eventually woke up and went back to Cameron's house again, needing to talk to Cameron. The two walked back to Mark's house, drank more beer, and Mark took Cameron upstairs. He showed Cameron where the two cat litter boxes were and told him he could let the cats go or take them to the shelter. Mark then showed Cameron where the dog food was and asked him to feed his dog. He gave Cameron spare keys to his house and pickup truck. At this point, Cameron said that Mark then went to his bedroom and started praying, saying, God forgive me for what I'm going to do. He then started laughing, came out of his room, hugged Cameron, and told him, Tonight's the night. I'm going to do it. Mark picked up an ice pick a box cutter and a pair of binoculars, and said, "'I'm going to stab her in the effing heart. "'I'm going to cut her effing throat.'" He hopped into his truck at approximately 9 p.m. and headed towards the hospital. Cameron knew he had to do something, so he stopped at the local police department and let officers know what was happening. A friend of Nancy's called her at the hospital and told her the police were searching for Mark. Nancy then called police, who told her to stay in the hospital unless she heard otherwise. Soon afterwards, police spotted Mark's truck at the hospital. They saw the vehicle was off, the lights were off, and that Mark was asleep inside. They woke him and took him into custody, and they searched the interior of the truck, where they found the weapons, the pair of binoculars, and an open container of beer. They arrested him for violating terms of the protective order and also for public intoxication, but they would eventually charge him with attempted murder. He would be convicted to 25 years in prison, followed by five years probation. But Mark would appeal. In the Indiana Court of Appeals, Mark's lawyer would not dispute the facts. He was at Nancy's workplace in the parking lot. He had the weapons in his car, and he had told people he was going to kill her. But his lawyers argued that the evidence was insufficient to constitute a substantial step towards murder. Instead, his actions constituted minor preparation. The judge would say that, due to the nature of the ice pick and box cutter, coupled with the distance between Mark and Nancy at the time of his arrest, the items were virtually useless to Mark in terms of attempted murder. If the circumstances were different, with different weapons, the ruling could have been different, but in Mark's case, he was cleared of wrongdoing he never took a substantial step towards commission of the crime of murder. This decision was shocking to Prosecutor Embry. This case could prevent him from successfully convicting Gregory. He wasn't actively engaging in attempted murder or holding the weapon within a distance that could be dangerous to the victim, so there was no crime. By the preceding standards, no matter how threatening he seemed, Gregory would be counted innocent, At least, that's what the prosecutor believed. If his team continued to pursue the attempted murder charges, there was a pretty good chance the case would be dismissed, and even if they were able to get Gregory to trial, a guilty verdict would probably be turned over by the appellate court, just like Mark Collier's case had been. In December of 2014, as part of a deal, Prosecutor Embry would drop the charge of attempted murder and Gregory would plead guilty to stalking Anna and Joanna. He would be sentenced to 10 years, one year in prison minus the time he already spent in jail, one year with community corrections, and eight years probation. The court ordered him to have no contact with Joanna, no contact with Anna, and banned him from being within 50 or 25 miles of their locations, respectively. When released, he would have to wear a tracking device to make sure he was following the rules. Let's just say he got off very easily. What had once been a possible 40-year sentence turned into just a few months behind bars. It was a slap on the wrist, so to speak. If he had gone to court, the judge and jurors would have heard about Gregory's past, and it wouldn't have done him any favors. In 1998, he was charged with a DUI in California, He was convicted and spent two days in jail and 36 months on probation in that scenario. In 2011, he was charged with obtaining property by trick or deception after writing $160,000 in bad checks to the Fire Lake Grand Casino in Oklahoma. This charge was dismissed in 2012 after he paid off his debt. Joanna would claim that Gregory was a violent drunk. Once he had punched a wall and she claimed he had hurt her in the past. One of Gregory's mountain-climbing buddies would say that the surgeon displayed volatile behavior on past trips. Gregory had hired guides from the same company, and on three separate occasions his trips were marked with anger issues. One was a temper tantrum he'd thrown after uh, one of his climbs was stalled because an avalanche claimed the lives of six people. The others were erratic behavior that guides worried about because Greg might endanger the lives of others. Due to his erratic behavior, the owner of the company, Guy Cotter, said he removed Gregory from the Everest trip and the doctor became enraged. Later, Gregory would try to have Guy Cotter ousted from the International Federation of Mountain Guide Associations and he'd lobby to have the company's doctor punished, saying that she abandoned him with altitude sickness and left him to die these claims were eventually proven unfounded a lot of the information i'm sharing with you was written by alison vance a journalist at the time for the indianapolis monthly she wondered then as we do now if even though gregory said and did some terrible things would he really have killed anna conrath it certainly seemed like it based on his words plans and actions But saying and doing awful things and even being a terrible person doesn't necessarily make someone a murderer. According to Gregory, the real victim in all of this is himself. He gave a jailhouse interview before his April release. He said he was drunk that night in Puerto Rico. He had thrown back six or seven drinks and didn't remember many details. Yes, the recording sounded pretty bad, but it was just a rant. There was some truth in there, but a lot of BS. He went on to say that, If he was with a buddy getting drunk and they were talking about their exes, they would start saying some stupid things like that. But sober, no, they wouldn't have. He said he remembered the next morning, Joanne telling him she was switching rooms because he was being a jerk. She then took his money and, according to him, turned out to be just like his ex-wife, exploiting him for his money. Joanna would later admit to meeting with Gregory at his workplace the day before his arrest. She said she didn't really say anything to him, but he said, What are you doing here? Her response was, I just really miss you, because she did miss him. They kissed each other, and then Gregory left. He left the meeting, feeling confused. One minute he felt like he was in a great relationship, and the next he was being charged with attempted murder. So when he was released from jail, he didn't consider the things he was doing as shocking or stalking. He just felt like he missed Joanna. He would explain the gun as being something he bought years ago for protection, and the bullets were just in Anna's house because he left them there by accident after he moved. In his drunken rage, the ammunition just became part of the story because sometimes when he drinks, he exaggerates. The suspicious clothing and plastic bags was just some of his climbing gear. As for his Mexican wife, he says he met her in Cabo during a few wild months after his divorce from Anna. Ultimately, the marriage didn't work out, and he was in the process of filing for divorce. He didn't know what his future plans would be. He hoped to get his old job back at Duke's Memorial Hospital, but first he'd have to get his medical license reinstated. It had been temporarily suspended. When he was finally released... Even though he wasn't allowed within 20 miles of Anna and was under a no-contact order with his kids, he just wanted to find a way to spend time with them. He admitted that maybe he was delusional, but he hoped his relationship with his ex-wife was repairable. It's my opinion that Gregory got away with a lot of things. He was used to getting his way, and even when he was penalized, things seemed to go favorably for him, and the punishments were mild. He wanted what he wanted and thought he should have it. He lived a long life without many restrictions, and that was good for him. But now he was a stalker, and even the little bit of freedom he was given proved to be too much. Not long after his plea deal and release, but still under a court order to stay away from his ex-wife and girlfriend, Gregory drove from Peru to Lafayette, where he had once lived with Anna. He cut off his monitoring device on April 29th, and he threw it out the window of his car at the intersection of Highway 38 and I-65 that evening. The FBI and the U.S. Marshal Service would be alerted, and a day later police would arrest Gregory during a routine traffic stop on I-40 just outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. He'd never shut off his cell phone, and he used his credit cards along the way. Another day and a half, and he'd have made it to Mexico to be with his wife. He might have been a great surgeon— but he was a terrible criminal. In August 2015, Gregory would be given a nine-year sentence for trying to escape. The prosecuting attorney asked the judge to give Gregory the maximum 30-month sentence on the escape charges, as well as revoke the eight-year suspended prison sentence on the stalking charges. He argued that Gregory never had any intention to comply with any order set in front of him. He went on to say that Gregory's history with noncompliance is epic. He had taken no responsibility for the actions that had put him on the bench. Gregory's defense attorney countered, asking for leniency and arguing that Gregory had made a train wreck of his life, but he had been a productive citizen until his arrest the previous year. How would Gregory spend the next nine years? Well, he said he thought about writing a sequel to the book he already wrote or something about his life. His career as an orthopedic surgeon was ruined. According to the Indiana Department of Corrections, incarcerated data, Dr. Gregory Conrath's earliest possible release date is October 22nd of 2022. That's this month for those of you listening upon release of this episode. Perhaps he did work on his writing skills while in prison, maybe even finished another book or two. Hopefully, he considered his actions and made some significant changes in his thought process. But based on a question asked in the 2020 interview, I doubt he's changed much. The reporter asked, Do you have any message to send to anybody? And his response was, Just, you know, watch what you say in front of your girlfriends. One thing he has done while in prison is sue Allison Vance, Indianapolis Monthly, and MS Publishing Corporation for defamation. He disagreed with several points in Allison's article, including that he was behind on child support payments that Anna had a million-dollar life insurance policy, that police obtained a warrant to search his home when police actually searched his home without a warrant, and several other points. The court found that Gregory failed to demonstrate that the article's allegedly defamatory statements were falsely made with malice, and instead found them to be substantially true and not defamatory. I tried to reach Allison Vance to get her thoughts on this case, but was unable to communicate with her. Anna Conrath has remained silent when it comes to her ex-husband. Hopefully she is safe and feels safe wherever she might be. I hope the same for Joanna. It's hard to stay hidden and safe in a world where all kinds of information is available with just a few clicks and a keyboard. As for Gregory Conrath, who will be free soon, I hope he chooses to become a stable asset to his community in whatever form that takes. Maybe he should stay single for his own benefit, as well as the safety of others.' I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and thank you for listening. Please subscribe, give Twisted Travel and True Crime a nice rating and review, and if you'd like to monetarily support the podcast, you can do so. There are links in the show description to give a one-time donation or become a monthly sponsor. Either would be greatly appreciated. If you'd like to see pictures relating to this case, please follow Twisted Travel and True Crime on Instagram, Facebook, and even on TikTok. I love being able to interact with you. Uh, there are a couple people I'd like to thank, especially today. The first is Megan H., who sent in a case suggestion. Uh, she sent that to my Gmail, which is twistedtravelandtruecrime@gmail.com. She says, I love listening to your podcast while I'm at work. You have a nice voice, and I love when you add in your opinion and thoughts on things. Sometimes it's the only laugh I get at work. Oh, Megan, I'm sorry to hear you have one of those jobs, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to make you smile. She wanted to suggest the case of Arturo Gatti. He is an Italian-Canadian boxer who was killed in Brazil. Well, I guess I should technically say uh, he died because his wife was arrested for his murder, but then it was ruled a suicide. It sounds very interesting, so I'm going to look into it and hopefully I'll be able to share it with everyone as a future episode. Thank you so much, Megan, for the case suggestion. I'd also like to thank two people who have taken the time to write a review. The first is from TD Coolest, who says, Five stars, excellent. This podcast is so great, my favorite for sure. I love listening to the host's calming voice, and her silly humor helps to lighten up even the worst true crime stories. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. I'd also like to thank Shelly Shelly. It could be Chelly Chelly. You'll have to let me know. It says, five stars. Love this podcast. Just found this and can't agree more. Great host, great stories. Wish you had a Patreon. Oh, thank you very much. I think that I will make a Patreon um, before too long. I just have to come up with uh, something special to give people who donate to the show through Patreon, and uh, I'm working on that. If anybody has any great ideas, let me know. I'm thinking sea glass necklaces for any high-dollar Patreons, and definitely commercial-free for first-tier Patreons. But if you have any great ideas, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you all so much for listening and hanging out with me this. For the last, oh, 40 minutes or so, I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas and safe travels of all kinds. Today's outtake, safety of others. Was that awkward? It feels awkward. Why do I make situations and statements so awkward? Awkward! Say awkward one more time, I dare you.